Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. We are in week number four of a series on stewardship we've entitled Money Matters, and talking about what does the Bible have to say about our material possessions. And the way that, that, that we've developed this series is that every message answers a question. And week one, it's and if, uh, did I mention where to turn in your Bibles? First Timothy 6, if I didn't mention that yet, it's where we've been um, for every message so far of this series, at least where we've started, and we've turned to some other passages throughout the series. But we're going to be in First Timothy 6 this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. I'd encourage you to follow along and see it for yourself. In, in, in any, per, any pastor's preaching, the, the eternal power of any pastor's preaching is through the, the Word of God. And so we seek to make much of Scripture here at Liberty. And uh, we've been answering questions from 1 Timothy chapter number 6. As Paul is writing to Timothy, Timothy's a pastor, Paul tells Timothy, you need to teach these things to the people of God. You need to charge them, and he says, charge them that are rich in this world. And so on week one, we answered the question, are you rich? And we've been answering that every week. Talk to me now, are you rich? You may not feel like it, but you and I are rich in this world, and uh, whether or not you feel like it, we looked at that in week number one. And then second week, we looked at who owns that. The Bible says that, talks about the fact that in this passage that it's God that give us, gives us these things to enjoy. He, he richly gives us the things we have. They are not ours, they are gifts from God. Who owns it? We are stewards, everything that we have, our health, our children, our careers, our minds, our knowledge, our resources, our relationships, those are gifts from God. We are not owners, we are stewards, and that changes everything. And we saw that in week two. And last week, the question was, are you generous? And we looked at scripturally kind of three acid tests to answer that question, are you a generous person? I've enjoyed, at the end of the message, I, I asked you, I, maybe it was even in the invitation, but I, I asked the question, do you know someone in your life that's generous? And have you known somebody throughout your life that was generous? And often we think of generosity, and it can be this, generosity may be in some huge gift or endowment to a, 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 a church or a, a, an organization or a nonprofit or a college or a university, and that can be an act of generosity. But the only acts of generosity are not just gigantic grants, there, there are acts of generosity that we can do with our lives throughout each and every day. And I've enjoyed over the last week hearing from some of you telling me stories and testimonies. We talked about it in staff meeting on Monday morning. Every Monday we start our staff meeting, we go live on Facebook Live with, uh, it's kind of a carryover from something we did during the COVID shutdown time. We call it Monday Motivation, and we go live on Monday mornings for about 15 minutes, and, and a couple dozen folks normally tune in. It's not a big crowd, and we just have fun, and we talk about the day um, before, and we go around. And on Monday, we went around the, the table with the staff meeting, we asked all of them to list uh, or, or name the person that comes to mind when we say, who is a generous person in your life? And I've loved hearing from them and from others throughout the week, people talking about acts of generosity. You know what I found out? As I said last week, generosity is not dependent upon your finances, it's dependent upon your heart. I found out that, that people that listed others as generous were people of all different income levels. 
and, and different material goods. In fact, I got an email from, from one lady in our church, and she sent this. She said, Pastor, when you were preaching on Sunday, my mind kept going back to this particular lesson I learned on generosity. She said, when I was 12, my family went to Mexico City to visit relatives. My uncles and aunts weren't wealthy people, but they all had homes in Mexico and lived comfortably. One of them lived in a beautiful tri-level house, so when my cousin invited me to accompany her so she could drop off schoolwork for a friend, I expected her friend to live in a home that looked similar to hers. She led me to an area that I, the best I could describe was a homeless camp. It reminded me of the Hooverville home set up during the Depression. The friend lived in a home that was made up of corrugated walls and old boards with dirt floors. Off to the side were rolled up blankets used for beds, and in the corner was a small hibachi barbecue where the mother did all the cooking. When my cousin introduced me to the family, the mom's eyes lit up to welcome this prima de America into her home. She offered me a homemade taco de frijoles. How did I do on that? That was a pretty good accent, wasn't it? A bean taco. I wanted to say no to her offer because I didn't want to take food away from her family seeing how she lived. However, in the Mexican culture, you always take what is offered. It was a life-altering lesson for me. If this woman would cheerfully welcome me into her home and offer me all she had, who am I to ever hold back when I have an opportunity to be a blessing? Here's what she said, Pastor, the truth is I'm a very selfish person. Whenever I get into my self-serving attitude, the Lord always reminds me of this Mexican woman I met as a 12-year-old girl. She was the most generous person I have ever met. And I love that email, a reminder that just a selfless gift of some bean tacos stayed with a lady for an entire lifetime. You don't know how that act of generosity this week could touch someone in your life. Let's strive to be generous. This morning, our question as we jump into the message, this morning's question we're going to answer is this, where's your home? Where's your home? Some of you think of your address right now. That's not necessarily what I'm talking about. Where is your home? I want to give you an illustration. And as we think about the things that we have, what, what home are we living for? Suppose your home, as all of ours, I believe, unless you're visiting from out of country, our home is in America. So we live in America, and suppose we were sent maybe on business over to France for a few months. We were sent to go live over there and to work over there for a few months, and we were told that while we were working, we were going to earn money, and, and we could use that money to buy whatever we wanted to in France. And we could then, when we came back, we could come back and we could bring with us any of the money that we had earned, but anything that we bought while we were there, any furnishings for the apartment, any artwork, anything of that nature, whatever we bought, we could not take back with us on the plane. Now think, if you were in another country for a limited period of time, you knew you were only going to be there for a limited period of time, and you were going to spend a way longer period of time in another country. Do you think in that short period of time over in France, do you think you'd spend your money on a whole bunch of fancy furniture and a whole bunch of fancy decorations and, and important artwork that you knew you couldn't bring back with you to the place you were going to be for a really long time? Probably what would we do? We would go ahead and either send our money back home to America or we would keep it with us to take it to America when we went, right? Makes sense. If we, if we did that, we, we wouldn't be doing that. Now, what about the illustration? We're going to see it in the Scripture today. That illustration, in some ways, is exactly the lives that we're living here in America. The Bible tells us that we are, as we're believers, 
we are citizens of another country. We're just passing through here for a limited period of time. Does it make sense that we're going to spend all of our resources, all of our efforts, all of our finances on things that we can't take with us for this short period of time to a place that we're going to be for a really long period of time? Where's your home? Let's use another illustration. Imagine yourself near the end of the Civil War. You're a northerner stranded in the south uh, by the war, and you plan to move back home to the north when the war is over. While in the South, you've accumulated a lot of Confederate currency. I think we've got a picture of this Confederate currency here, what it looked like then. You've gotten a whole bunch of this while you lived in the South, but this isn't home. The South, maybe for some of you it is, but in this illustration, the South isn't home. You're ready to go back North, and you know, you've been told that the war is ending very soon, and very soon your Confederate currency is going to be absolutely worthless. What would you do? If, if you, would you hoard that Confederate currency? If you were smart, you know what you would do? You'd immediately exchange all the Confederate currency you had for U.S. currency. The only money that would have value after the war, you would keep enough Confederate currency to meet your daily needs while you were in that foreign land, if you will, while you were in that other territory, but you would cash the rest of it in for currency that matters in the place where you're going to spend the rest of your life at home. These answers, answering this question, where's your home, changes the way we view the stuff we have, the money we have, the things we're going to do with what we have. It changes those things. What you do with your money is de determined by where your home is. Let me say that once more. What you do with your money is determined by where your home is, not where you are visiting. As Christians, we have a, some insider trading tips. As Christians, we have inside knowledge of an eventual worldwide destruction and collapse. And, and if you're visiting, you're like, what's this guy talking about? I don't want to scare you too much. But all of this, the Bible teaches us, is coming to an end at some point. We don't know exactly when as Christians, but we know that there's going to be an eventual worldwide upheaval caused by Christ's return. And it's the ultimate insider trading tip, if you will, because when that happens, Earth's currency will be worthless. Or when we die, all the stuff we have will be worthless. And by the way, either event could happen for all of us at any day. Christ could return or He could call us home. And this morning, I want to challenge you with that question, where's your home? Where are you investing your resources, in the temporal or in the eternal? I want you to look at our passage, 1 Timothy chapter number 6. Let's begin in verse number 17. And then I'm going to give you three thoughts from this passage today that I hope will be a challenge to you as we think about what world am I living for? What am I living for in this world? 1 Timothy chapter number 6, verse number 17. Would you read it aloud with me? Ready? Begin. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Verse 18, would you read that aloud? Ready? Begin. That they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. That was our text last week. Are you generous? Now read verse 19, our text this morning. Ready? begin, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Do you see it there? He challenges them, I want you to think about which world, which home you're living for, your earthly home or your eternal home, with your life, with your time, with your talents, 
with your resources. Now, we all have to live an earthly life. You've heard, sometimes I've heard people say, so heavenly minded, he's of no earthly good. More often, we're so earthly minded, we're of no heavenly good, but we all have to live earthly lives, and there are earthly things, and you've got to run to the dry cleaners, and, and well, what big eternal impact is me going to the grocery store? Well, it keeps you alive so that you can make a difference in eternity, but it's really about a matter of perspective and priority. What home is most important to us, our earthly home or our eternal home? I'm going to give you three thoughts from this passage. Number one, we see Paul teaching them here teaching Timothy and telling Timothy to tell his church family, if you will, there is an eternal home that we should be living for today. He tells them, Timothy, charge them that are rich in this world, there is something bigger than this world. Let them know there is more to life than just this. There is more to life than just what you can find on this earth. Timothy, teach them there is an eternal home that we should be living for today. Do you notice how the passage that we read starts in verse 17? Charge them that are rich. What are the next three words? Charge them that are rich in this world. He's starting that off by letting them know there are two different places. In this world, he, he, why would Paul word it that way? Is there a non-present world, a world that is not this world, like a future world? Paul is tipping his hand to the fact that he believes there is more to this life than this life. Notice what he says. He says, charge them that are rich in this world. Then in verse number 19, what does he say? The last, uh, toward the end there, he says that they may lay up for themselves a good foundation against, you see it there, the time to come. Paul instructs Timothy to tell us us rich people, that they get, we get one opportunity to do good in such a way that we will impact our standing in the age to come. Now, some of you got scared there. I'm not talking about work salvation. I'm not talking about buying your way into heaven. I'm not talking about what, what at one time was a Catholic doctrine centuries ago of indulgences, that when you had a, a relative die, depending on how much sin they had done, you could come and talk to the priest, and the priest would tell you, well, they were this bad of a sinner, it's going to cost you this much money to get them out of purgatory. So you give this much money to the church, and I might be able to help get your relative that's dead out of purgatory and maybe a little closer up into heaven. I'm not talking about buying your way into heaven. The Bible makes it very clear there is nothing that you or I can do or give to earn our ways into heaven. You giving to the offering plate here or giving, giving online electronically does not help you get into heaven. But what Paul is, so Paul is not teaching a work salvation. What he is telling them is there are things you can do with your earthly resources that affect you in eternity. That's what Paul says. He says, laying for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Surveys show that 97% of Americans uh, believe in a world to come or the afterlife, but many of them define it differently. Even Christians often have misconceptions. Many, many Christians think that treasures in heaven won't, won't be tangible. They kind of imagine maybe heaven's not tangible, kind of we're just these disembodied spirits floating around playing harps all day or something. We, we have these weird ideas of what heaven is, but the Bible is crystal clear on this issue. In the new heaven and the new earth, it will be a real material place. We will have glorified bodies. There will be communities and culture and even stuff that we possess. And Paul says to Timothy, let people know they can 
can take some things that are worthless in the time to come. They're worth something here, but they're worth nothing there. They can take them, and they can use them in ways that they are worth something over there. There is laying up treasure for yourselves in heaven. Matthew Henry, the, the commentator, said it ought to be the business of every day to prepare for our last day. What is he saying? As we live every day on this earth, we ought to be thinking about what am I doing for the world to come? What am I doing for, for, for my, if I'm saved, my time in heaven? Number one, I said, there's an, Paul taught there's an eternal home that we should be living for today. And by the way, that goes beyond our money. Yes, we've called this Money Matters. Yes, all the slides have, have 20s and 10s and pictures of cash on them. Yes, we're talking a lot about financial stewardship, but this series is not just about your money. You and I have more resources than just money. We have to be using our time every day for the world to come. What are we doing today that will impact eternity, impact lives for the glory of God? You and I, there's an eternal home. We need to understand there's an eternal home that we should be living for today. Number two, what is Paul teaching here and what does the Bible teach? You can't take your treasure with you, but you can send it ahead. Like the American living in France for three months. He couldn't bring it back on the plane, but he could send the treasure he earned there, the money he earned there back home, if you will. Send it ahead of his arrival. You can't take your treasure with you, but you can set it, uh, 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 send it ahead. What does he say here? Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. You can do some things here that there are rewards over there. Jesus said it. You said, this sounds weird to me. This sounds kind of, uh, you've got this account in heaven, and I don't know if I really agree with this. I don't know if I really believe this. Maybe you're pulling that verse out of context. Maybe that's not what Paul's saying. Well, let's see what Jesus had to say. Matthew chapter number 6, verses 19 through 21, what did Jesus say? He commanded them, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. Here's what he said, but lay up for yourselves what? Treasure. What does he say? Treasure. Lay up for yourselves treasures in where? Where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus specifically says, you can take what you have here, and you can send it ahead. You can do some things that impact eternity with your time, your talents, your treasures. When Jesus warns us to not to store up treasures on earth, <clears throat> it's not because wealth might be lost here on earth. It's because wealth will always be lost at some point here on earth. Maybe after our death, but it will always be lost. It's common sense, right? John D. Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest men who ever lived, after he died, someone asked his accountant, how much money did Mr. Rockefeller leave? His accountant's reply, all of it. All of it. We're not going to be able to hold on to it. You've heard, you've heard the, uh, the famous preacher line, you've never seen a, a U-Haul behind a hearse. The only problem is somebody took a picture of a U-Haul behind a hearse, and it's on Facebook. There's a meme now, so somebody said, oh, pastors can't say this anymore, right? What's, what's the reality? The reality is we can't take it with us. 
No matter what we achieve or or amass in this life, we're not taking it with us to the next life. We're not, those things are gone. How much did he leave? All of it. What is the psalmist said in Psalm 49, be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dieth, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Job said it this way, naked came I into this world, naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We're not going to take any of us of this with us. The old Methodist preacher, John Wesley, was, he was touring a vast estate with a proud plantation owner. They rode their horses for hours as the plantation owner showed him all of the things that he had, all of the life he had built. They toured on the, those horses for hours and saw only a fraction of the man's property. At the end of the day, they sat down for dinner. The plantation owner eagerly asked Mr. Wesley, Well, Mr. Wesley, what do you think? Wesley replied, I think you're going to have a hard time leaving all this. What was he saying? You've made this, you dug your roots too deep here in this home. You're not really living for the next home. We can't take our treasure with us, but we can send it ahead. Financial planners will tell you, when it comes to your money, think 30 years ahead, not three years or three months ahead. Think about the long-term investment in your finances, in your saving, your retirement. Christ, the ultimate investment counselor, takes it further. He says, don't ask how your investment will be paying off in just 30 years. Ask how it will be paying off in 30 million years. Where's your home? Where's my home? You say, well, does this mean, Pastor Ryan, I can't ever buy anything? I can't save? I can't have investment? I can't plan for the future? No, the Bible speaks to all of those principles, and I can't cover all of them in this message. The Bible speaks to the wisdom of saving for, for these things. The Bible speaks to the wisdom of providing for our children and our children's children in different ways, not always financially, sometimes spiritually in other ways. The Bible speaks to a man providing for his own household, taking care of those things. But what the Bible does speak against is us hoarding these things just for ourselves and never thinking, how can I use the blessings God's given me to make an impact in people's lives here on earth and in their lives and in eternity there in, in a different place? In order to retain dividends in eternity, Jesus says we ought to transfer our funds from the fallen earth, which will one day take a permanent dive, to heaven, which is insured by God and will replace earth's economy forever. The Bible is peppered with verses that give us eternal motivation to handle money God's way. Remember when Paul commended the Philippians for giving generously? What did he say to them in in Philippians chapter number four, verse number 17? He thanked them for their generosity. What did he say? Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Isn't that interesting? What is Paul teaching? You took care of the missionary. He said, I'm so thankful you did, not because I'm trying to get rich, not because I'm trying, because I need more. It's not about me. I'm not so happy you gave because of how it made my life easier. I'm so happy you gave because I know you're laying up treasures in heaven. I desire fruit that may abound to your account. You and I, according to Scripture, and it's not just one obscure verse, according to much of of Scripture, you look at the studies, that you and I have a bank account in heaven. 
And we saw last week that the, that, that, that the sum isn't necessarily the, the thing that matters. We see this, the sacrifice, the two mites that the, the widow gave, but we have that account in heaven. What is fruit to your account? I, I kind of imagine a scribe in heaven recording each of our gifts. And I, I think about this week as we have seed line and our church is going to assemble 100,000 copies of Scripture, Lord willing, together to send uh, to the Philippines for missionaries to use and national pastors to use to get 100,000 thousand copies of Scripture. I believe personally, and this is not some pastor motivational speech or manipulation tactic, I believe from Scripture personally, as we see Paul saying, as you gave to the work of God, it's fruit that abounds to your account. I believe as you sit there at a stapler this week and you staple copies of Scripture, I believe as first and second and third and fourth graders in our elementary school fold covers, and we have people at the cutter, and by the way, if we could get somebody, the last few years the guy at the cutter hasn't been very good, if we could find somebody else this year. Javen, are you coming down this week? I'm not sure. Javen's always at the cutter there. But, but as we're cutting those scriptures and we're boxing them up and we're taping them, and when you come next week, you'll see boxes full of 100,000 copies of scripture. I personally believe that as we do that, that is, as we put those things together, that is eternal fruit. You said I could use my time to do X, Y, or Z, and I chose, you know what, I'm going to go and assemble scriptures for people I'll never meet in a language I might never read so that they can hear the good news of Jesus Christ, and I believe the Bible teaches that what that is, is you sending treasure in heaven. And it's fruit that abounds to your account. I don't know how all how heaven's going to work. I don't know when we get there, somebody will walk up from, from the Philippines and say, hey, I found out you're the one that stapled my, I don't know if that's all how it's going to go, but I do know that the Bible says that when we give to eternal causes of our time, of our money, the Bible says, Paul said, I, I didn't need the gift, but I desired fruit that would abound to your account. I do like what Javen says, there'll be times we're working and I'll thank him for doing something that maybe nobody saw, and I'll say, I appreciate the work you've done here, and I'll talk to and I, obviously others as well, but Javen has a saying, you've heard me say it before, and Javen will say this when I'll thank him, maybe something, fixing a toilet or whatever it might be that nobody sees, that nobody really appreciates, no one's writing a thank you note, we're not putting it on a promotional video, look at what happened, and here's what he says, God keeps perfect records. What is he saying? I'm thankful for your appreciation, but I didn't do it for your thanks. I did it for his glory, and God sees all that we do. God knows, and I'm just going to trust that he can take, take what I have, and for Javen, that's construction experience, and he can, he's good with his hands and can build. I'm going to use what I have to try to impact the work of God and the lives of people. Fruit to your account. Those Bibles you assemble, the donations to a church or missionaries, that contribution to a pregnancy center, whatever it might be, all of those things, uh, volunteering at the rescue mission, wherever it might be, serving in the bus ministry, singing in the choir, those things I believe are all being logged as fruit to your account. Martin Luther said, I've held many things in my hands and I've lost them all, but whatever I've placed in God's hands, that I still possess. Regarding our giving, I like this illustration. For those that maybe like to play board games or card games, those that like to play card games, how many of you, you like to, poke, you like to play poker? You, any of you? No one wants to admit that in a Baptist church, huh? <laughs> how many of you spiritual people? It's Uno. A little more Uno players in here, all right? With our giving, our giving, it's really kind of like, are we playing poker or Uno? What do I mean by that? From what Javen told me in poker, you, uh, I don't know why I'm picking on Javen today. I'm not sure why that is. But in poker, two of a kind, if you have two of the same kind, that's good, right? Three of a kind is even better. 
four of a kind, then a straight, and I think I have right here on the, the top five, I've got my, uh, a royal flush. You get all the face cards. And, and some of you are like, how does our pastor know so much about poker? You got to pay for these buildings. Some, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not playing poker. I'm not doing that. But, but what is the goal in poker? To end with the most and the highest valued, right? Two twos, you, I've only got two cards left in their twos, that's pretty bad. We want to end with the most in my hand and the highest valued cards. That's the goal in poker. What's the goal of Uno? The goal in Uno is to be who can get rid of their cards the fastest, who can lay them all down first. And, and you don't like it when somebody puts a plus two, plus another plus two, plus another plus two. By the way, you cannot put a plus four on top of a plus two, okay? We'll just get that clear right here. So when you're playing, you people that try to cheat that way can only be plus two on top of plus two. But many of us, we go through life like it's a game of poker. The one with a handful of good cards at the end wins. Or as the bumper sticker has, you've probably seen says, he who dies with the most toys wins. But you can't take it with you. Life is best when you treat it like Uno. The first one to lay it all down wins. Get rid of your cards as quickly as you can. Those who live with an Uno mindset understand that all they lay down for Christ is their reward. Tozer said it this way. He said, as base a thing as money often is, it yet can be transmuted into everlasting treasure. It can be converted into food for the hungry and clothing for the poor. It can keep an a missionary actively winning lost men to the light of the gospel and thus transmute itself into heavenly values. Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. I love that last line. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. You and I, there's another world to come that we ought to be living for. We need to understand that, and we need to understand we can't take our treasure with us, but we can send it ahead. There's an eternal world to come, and we can send it ahead. Number three, what does Paul show them here? Giving is the key to learning to truly live. Giving is the key to learning to truly live. Look at the last phrase of verse number 19. The last phrase of verse 19 that they may lay hold on eternal life. When you look at this passage as a whole, it's saying when you give of yourself and of your resources, then you literally get to store up treasure and reward for the future. But that's not all. It's not just about reward and treasure for the future. He says here, you, you lay hold on eternal life. And again, a quick reading of that, some people might get confused. It's not teaching I give so I can earn my way into heaven. It's not what he's teaching. When, as you study that passage out and that phrase in particular out, what you find out is it's not a work salvation. What he says, it's giving in this world is not only about future assets, there is also a present benefit. What he's teaching is you learn what it is really like to live the joyful life God has planned for you down here. Down here you get a taste of the joys of heaven. It is more blessed to than to. When I was a kid I didn't believe that. Sometimes still I don't believe that. I'd really like to get. But you know what I find out? As much as I love to get a good gift, there's a great joy when you give something you know somebody wants or needs, and you make an impact, and you see a tear or, or a smile or joy. Or, there's, there's a fulfillment there that getting doesn't get, and that's the idea here. You're, you're laying hold on You're starting to find out about the joys of eternal life down here when you learn to give.
Not only are there, is there a future benefit, there's a present benefit to giving. A life with eternal value has great fulfillment here on earth. I want you to turn to one place, and I'm going to wrap it up. Luke in chapter 3. This is an interesting passage. I want you to see it for yourself. Luke in chapter number 3, it's the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the one who came before Jesus, Jesus' cousin, if you will. He comes before Jesus, and he goes and he starts preaching, the, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world is coming. I'm not a—it's not me, but the one who's coming to tell you how to get to heaven, the Messiah is coming behind me. And so John the Baptist went around preaching, you need to get saved, basically. You need to get right with God. I want you to see Luke in chapter number three. John the Baptist begins to preach, and we're going to wrap this up. He begins to preach, and three different groups ask him how they should prove their repentance, how they should prove that they're following Jesus, how they should prove that they're trusting Christ. Chapter 3, verse number 1, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, so we see where we're at. Skip down to verse 2. Annas and Caiaphas, being the high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the country about Jordan, look at this, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. He's preaching salvation. For the sake of time, skip down to verse 7, please, if you will. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him. John wasn't the most popular kind preacher. Look what he says. They're all coming to get baptized. He says, oh, generation of vipers, that's what he calls them, you bunch of snakes. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? How do you know? How do you know that, that there's eternal damnation if you don't get saved? Notice what he says in verse 8. Here's what he says in verse number 8. Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. Well, I, I, I'm from a religious family. We, we come from a long line of God's people. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid under the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him, saying, what's the, the question there, church? What shall we do then? So he says, he says, you don't think because of who you are or the family you were born into or the, just because you're, you're Jewish, whatever it might be, and that that's going to get you to heaven and, and that that's a, that's a, a good fruit. He said, what are the, he didn't say this is what's going to get you, but what are the fruits of repentance that you're, you're truly a changed person? What are the fruits? Well, look at my family. Well, I'm a child of Abraham. Well, I'm a Jew, uh, whatever it might be. And they said, well, then what should we do? How, how do we prove that we're really believing? How do we prove it? Three different groups of people ask him, and this is an interesting passage. Look at verse number 11. Would you read it aloud with me? Ready? Begin. He answereth and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. What? Oh, John, 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 John. We're talking about heaven. I'm trying to talk about, I know there's wrath to come, and I'm trying to miss it. I need my sins forgiven. I'm talking about remission of sins. I want that. I want to get baptized, whatever that. What are the fruits of repentance? How do we prove that God really has changed my life? He said, well, those of you that have two coats, find somebody that doesn't have one and give one to them. Those of you that have a lot of meat, find somebody that's struggling to eat and give some food to them. Everyone, he's saying we should share some, some necessities with those that don't have it, with the poor. Look at verse 12. Then came also publicans. These were, these were people that were very good with money, tax collectors, usually very wealthy. A lot of times were very scrupulous and dishonest business people, if you will. Then came also publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? How, how do we prove that we're different? Verse 13, would you read it aloud? Ready, begin. 
And he said unto them, exact no more than that which has appointed you. What did he say? Don't pocket extra money, tax collectors. You need to learn to be honest in your business dealings. I didn't ask you. John, I was not asking you how to run my business. I was not asking you about what I should do with my bank account. I was asking you about how I make sure that I'm going to heaven. How do I prove that, that God really has changed me? What are the fruits of that? Well, you're going to help people that don't have anything, and you're going to be honest in your dealings. Look at the third group of people, verse number 14. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he saith unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Soldiers, don't extort money. Don't plant evidence on somebody that was, that was not guilty. And be content with what you're getting paid. Which one of these three groups had asked John about finances? Nobody had asked John about finances. They were talking about baptism. They are talking about wrath to come. They are talking about remission of sins. And yet, what does John say? They wanted to know. They were asking, how do we demonstrate spiritual transformation in our lives? So if that was the question, how do we demonstrate spiritual transformation in our lives? Why did John's response center almost exclusively on money and possessions? I believe, and we see it with Jesus' teachings and Paul's, I believe it's because John wanted his audience to know that our approach to money and possessions is central to our spiritual lives. Let me say that again. Our approach to money money and possessions is central to our spiritual lives. They all came saying, how do we demonstrate that we've been changed spiritually? And he said, start giving to people that have less than you. He said, be honest with what you have. He said, be honest in your business dealings. Don't, don't try to skim some off the top for yourself. Don't be dishonest to your bosses or whatever it might be. And he said, he said, soldiers, don't falsely accuse somebody. Don't mistreat citizens because you're in a place of power. Don't extort money and be happy with how how much you've been given. What did he say? The, our approach to our stuff indicates our relationship and attitude to our Savior. And Jesus said it that way in Matthew 6, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Hudson Taylor said this way, he said, the less I spent on myself and the more I gave away, the fuller of happiness and blessing did my soul become. The less I spent on myself and the more I gave away, the fuller of happiness and blessing did my soul become. Church family, you can bank on this truth. My heart will always go where I put God's money. Notice I didn't say where I put my money because it's his. We talked about that two weeks ago. My heart will always go where I put God's money. Always. Suppose that I bought or you bought 10,000 shares of Coca-Cola. We went out, Coca-Cola, if you look, it actually has, if, I, if my parents would have just like put like $1,000 into Coke shares when I was born, I'd be, be doing better today. But oh, historically, it's done unbelievably well over a long period of time, a pretty conservative investment. But Coke, guess what? If I bought 10,000 or even 1,000 shares of Coca-Cola stock, what do you think would happen in my life? Do you think I would ever have any Pepsi products in my fridge? By the way, how many Coke fans do we have? Coke, Coke products? Pepsi products? I think Dr. Pepper's a Pepsi product, so that's my only Pepsi product. The rest would probably be Coke products. But guess what? I, all of a sudden, I'll be really interested in Coca-Cola. Every time a Coke commercial comes on, I'll watch it to see if I think it's good, funny, and it's, it's, it's effective. 
I'll check the financial pages and see what the stock price says. I'll probably have a stock alert to tell me what Coca-Cola is doing and to send me text messages about it. I couldn't tell you today what the Coke stock price is, but if I had 10,000 shares, I could tell you what it was a week ago, what it is today, what it was a month ago, what it was a year ago. I would, I would be an expert on Coca-Cola stock. I, I wouldn't be buying Pepsi ever. I wouldn't be doing every restaurant I walked into. I would look to see, are they doing Coke products or Pepsi products? Good, another one. That's good for the stock price, another, another restaurant. All of a sudden, my life, as it relates to my beverage choices my, my, and, and my, my, my attention to detail and knowing what's happening in the Coca-Cola business would be totally different than it is today. Why? Because my heart will always follow where I put God's money. As surely as the compass needle follows north, your heart will follow your treasure. I've heard people say, well, I I want more of a heart for the work of God. Jesus tells you exactly how to get it. Put your money, your life, your time in the work of God and your heart will follow. Do you wish you cared more about eternal things? Then reallocate some of your resources from temporal to eternal things and watch what happens. You'll be amazed and you'll be happy. And may, I, and may I say what I said last week for us, giving is not a luxury of what we would call the rich. Giving is a joyous privilege of the Christian, no matter what our finances are. And today, for us to handle our stuff correctly, we have to answer this question, where's our home? Are we living for this place we're going to be for just a short period of time in Paris, France, and we've got the most beautiful apartment in the world, and we're leaving three weeks later, and what good is it going to do? It changes how we deal with, when we answer this question, where our home is, the Bible says there's a time to come, a world to come that we should be living for. Again, I live in a home. We have furniture. My wife wants some new furniture. You pray for me. And... uh, it doesn't mean you can't ever buy a new couch. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. But we have to look and say, what are we doing with what we have? There is a world to come. It's not, we're not going to be able to take it with us, but we can send it ahead. And giving, giving is the key to learning to truly live, to lay hold on eternal life, to start to find some of that eternal fulfillment and joy in our lives. The Lord taught me this. I'll close with this illustration. The Lord taught me and my wife, how really unimportant most of the stuff that we view as important materially is. About, oh, I guess, I guess now it's been 10 years. That's hard to believe. I'll show you a picture of the last home we lived in in Northern California. That's 527, a little blurry, but 527 Woodstock Way. That home right there, it was at the time, it was the biggest house we'd ever lived in. We were going to rent it. We were able uh, eventually later to, to purchase it by a kind of a miracle that God allowed to happen in our lives. And we, we, we started renting this home. At the time, it was the biggest house we ever had. We had five children, family of seven. This was a four-bedroom, two-bath, ranch-style house, I guess, on about a 6,000-square-foot lot, that little yard and a yard about the same size on the back of it. The house was 1,600 square feet. And we thought we were in the Taj Mahal there with 1,600. We had moved out of like a 1,000 square foot apartment at that point that we had been in. And uh, we were there in our, three, in our four bedroom house. That house was built in 1967. We were the second owners or the second residents. A couple, a young couple had bought it in 1967 or a younger couple had bought it in 1967 and lived there for almost 50 years. The couple before us were the original owners. The wife had grown old and passed away. The man was more than 90 years old and was still in good health living on his own. He mowed his own lawn every—I would talk to the neighbors. He would go out and mow his own lawn every week. He cared for himself. He cooked his own meals. He did all of those things. He came down with a sickness unexpectedly and went to the hospital to get treatment. 
and was never able to regain his strength and never came home from that hospital visit. It, he had not been sick, did not have necessarily cancer or disease of that nature. It was all somewhat unexpected. He passed away in the hospital. His children from out of state came to the house, and they grabbed a few sentimental things. Maybe some of the, I think some of the, the wife's jewelry, uh, wedding rings, things of that nature, a few fo- family photos, photo albums, some of those things. Those were the things that they grabbed. But literally, when my wife and I walked in to see the home, when you walked in, it looked like someone still lived there. Right when you walked in that door, there was a grandfather clock. There was a dining room table to the side, and there was uh, a living room furniture over here, and shag carpet. It still had carpet in the bathrooms, and uh, kind of gross, but it had carpet in the bathrooms. And, and literally, dishwasher still had dishes in it. It had finished the cycle and, and had not yet been emptied. And that's how unexpectedly he had gone to the hospital. There were still sodas and food in the refrigerator. In the, in the garage, there was a lawnmower, there were rakes and, and shovels and all of the things. And we walked around and the house was fully furnished. Still his clothes were in the closet in the master bedroom. The kids had not taken those. And, and we walked through and it was all there. And as we were, uh, the, the realtor contacted us a few days before we were to move in. And he said, here's what he said, and this is what struck me. He said, the family is willing to sell you everything that's left in there for $1,000 if you would like it, so they don't have to come from out of state to get it all moved. If not, they'll call a charity that will come to haul it all off. Well, I'm always trying to look for a a way to maybe make a little extra money there, a little side hustle or something. And so I thought, man, I could probably list that on Craigslist and I could do this and sell that. That grandfather clock's probably worth some money. I think I could make my money back. And I got thinking, I got walking around a bunch of the furniture was really old. And I got realizing, you know what, I probably could make my money back, but the amount of hours and then paying to take stuff to the dump or whatever it might be. And we were trying to move from one place to another. Do I really have weeks to have this stuff sitting around the garage? I thought about it. I tried to talk my wife into it. Hey, let's keep all their stuff and try to sell it. And she's like, honey, I don't need that headache. We're not doing that. And so I told the realtor, you know what? Just go ahead and call the charity. Have them come down and pick all that stuff up. You know what hit me? At that time, my wife and I, we had been married 12 years. We were a younger couple, really still kind of just getting started. And, and moving into a bigger house, we didn't have enough furniture to fill the house. We were at Ikea and other places looking at stuff. And let's, let's redo the flooring. and All this stuff that we thought was really important for us. And the, the thought hit me. This couple, about 50 years before that, had done the exact same thing. They had been going to furniture stores. And, and well, let's buy that and let's get that art piece and let's, let's do that and get these furnishings. And now at the end of their life, everything that in 50-ish years of marriage they had amassed, their kids didn't want it, and it wasn't even worth $1,000 to, to me. Just give it to a charity to come take it away so it's out of our headache. We don't want it. Take it away and do whatever you want with it. All that they had bought every time they had gone to a store, every decoration, every piece of furnishing, all that they had amassed in their lives that furnished this four-bedroom house wasn't even worth $1,000 to me and was worth nothing to their children. You know what it reminded me of? All this stuff is not going to matter that much. I, I wish I could tell you that I've always remembered that, but it's not. And if you've lived any length of time, you know whatever that one piece of, of furnishing that you bought that you were so excited about, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years later, you're ready to replace it. It's out of style. You want something different. That's okay. But you know the reminder? You know what the thought is there? Be careful holding too tightly to any of that stuff. To valuing any of that stuff too much because the reality is it's not really going to matter. That couple married more than 50 years, everything they had amassed, unwanted by their family, not worth $1,000 to another couple. This stuff really doesn't matter. So here's the question. 
where's your home? Are we like the American living in Paris? Or are we sending our treasures ahead to our true home? And if you're here this morning and you're not sure that heaven is your home, Jesus is the greatest eternal treasure. Don't leave here today without him. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Whether or not you give to a church, whether or not you live in a beautiful home or you're just struggling to make ends meet, that stuff doesn't matter in the big scheme of things. What does matter is do you know for sure if you were to die today that heaven would be your home? So I'm talking about where's your home as it relates to our stewardship, but way more important is where's your home when you die as it relates to your salvation? Do you know for sure if you were to die today that your sins are forgiven and heaven would be your home? If not, make today the day of your salvation. Place your faith and trust in Christ alone. Make heaven your home. And then for those of us, once you've made heaven your home, let's do all that we can on this earth to live to send things on to our true home, our eternal home, and be stewards where fruit will abound to our account. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.